So a, a city of immense wealth. But by the time of the first century, the glory of that city was in its past. It was a city which rested on reputation. It was declining. The other city, Philadelphia, was a newer city. That was also significant. It was the gateway to the east, to the Roman provinces, which are large areas of Phrygia and Lydia. Um, it was called um, the missionary city, the gateway to the east, because uh, Alexander the Great reached those provinces from that city. It wasn't a Christian term, that, the missionary city. It had your usual Roman temples to foreign gods, but also a sizable synagogue where Jews would worship. And in each of these cities, Sardis and Philadelphia, there were churches, followers of Jesus. But we, we heard the letters being read out. They couldn't have been more different in Jesus' assessment. Chalk and cheese. The, Jesus' letter to the church in Sardis, negative. Letter to the church in Philadelphia, positive. Now this, by the way, is why it's very good to cover them together. Imagine, just for a moment, if we were doing only one letter a week, and today we were doing Sardis, everyone would leave feeling entirely beat up, right? But the reality is that the Spirit has something to say to us from both of these letters, because by looking at them side by side, we have to ask this question. How could it be that two churches, which are practically neighbors, could be judged by Jesus so differently? Now think of the Trinity churches. If we thought Jesus must think of us all the same because we're all part of the same network, we would be wrong. Because these letters tell us that Jesus can be pleased with one church but not pleased with another, even though it's next door just up the road. What makes the difference? Well, the thing that links both of these churches and their letters together is the theme of name. Stick with me. The word name comes up four times in each letter. To the church in Sardis, verse one, I know your deeds, you have a name, a reputation. Verse four, you have a few named in Sardis. Verse five, I will never blot out the name of that person, but will acknowledge that name before my father. To the church in Philadelphia, verse eight, you have not denied my name. Verse 12, I will write on them the name of my God. Verse 12, I will write on them the name of the city of my God. Verse 12, I will write on them also my new name. Name is a theme which binds these letters together and I think cracks them open. The church in Sardis relied on their own name, their reputation. It was more about them than about Jesus himself. By contrast, the church in Philadelphia was all about living for Christ, not forsaking Christ's name. We don't think much about name, but we remember the third commandment, don't we? You shall not take my name in vain. If we reduce that just to saying you can't swear and say, oh God, we've missed the point. I mean, don't do that, but it's much bigger than that. Because we, as those who have been purchased by Jesus' blood to become citizens in his kingdom, we carry his name, his reputation. When a Christian leader sins grievously, it drags Jesus' name through the mud. Um, when a church does something inappropriate, 
Jesus' name is dishonoured. On the contrary, we can uphold Jesus' name, we can glorify Jesus' name by reaching out in love, by standing for the truth, by loving one another, by doing the sorts of things that we have in our vision statement. Loving God, loving people, loving others. We uphold the name of God and Jesus' name. Now, Jesus' appraisal of his churches rests on how well they are doing that. So the church in Sardis had a great reputation. People talked about the church. They had had a very good past. They, were health, they had been healthy. They had been evangelistically strong. They had loved one another. They had been wealthy probably as well, being in that city. But the church had become like the city and they were coasting on the fading glow of past glory, like sort of the ember of a candle which has been blown out. Just a little glow left. And yet their reputation, their name, their past bore little resemblance to their reality in the present. I know your deeds, you have a reputation, a name of being alive, but the reality is you are dead. Now that assessment, dead, imagine, imagine Jesus saying that. You're dead. It's so shocking. The church was like a city. Sardis was a city who thought itself impregnable. Twice in its history, um, 546 BC and it was about 112 BC, um, the city had fallen. What had happened was everyone had retreated to the garrison on top of that mountain and the guards um, who were meant to watch, weren't watching. Why wouldn't they watch? Because they thought they rested on reputation. They thought their city was unassailable. And an attacking soldier had somehow scaled the cliffs twice in history and then snuck in and opened the gates and let the attacking army in. The city had rested on the past reputation like a church, like a church. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Now that sounds so damning, of course, it's not entirely damning, is it? I was trying to illustrate that. The bird was probably a little bit alive. <laughs> it's not entirely damning because otherwise, why would Jesus tell them then what to do? It's not entirely damning, but boy, it's close. It's a dire situation for them. What did they do to earn such a rebuke? Well, it comes out as Jesus tells them what to do. Wake up! In other words, they've been asleep. Now, most references to Christians being asleep in the New Testament refer to them forgetting about Jesus' return. They just get absorbed in their own life, absorbed in their own culture, eyes down, front of their diaries, whatever in front of them. They never make gospel-informed decisions about what they're doing. They've forgotten to do that. They begin to play with sin and soon they're no different to their unbelieving friends. Jesus says, wake up. Could Jesus say this of us? How much of our corporate church life, how much of your personal life is shaped by the reality of his coming? This is the Advent season when we remember this for good reason, because we're prone to forget. So often we do forget, don't we? We think the gospel is all about Jesus who died for our sins and who rose from the dead. Fantastic. 
we forget that because he rose from the dead, he's still alive, and where he is now is he's reigning on his throne in heaven, and he will return to judge. And that's what the apostles in the New Testament proclaimed. If we forget that part of the gospel, we haven't got it right, right? It was so refreshing for the men last week um, at our men's event at um, Adelaide Oval to hear um, the speaker, um, Nick Saros, how the life of one of Adelaide's key crime lords was turned around. He came back from being challenged on a beach in Corfu by his wife who was on a deck chair reading a Bible, reading a Bible on a beach in Corfu. She said, Nick, you should listen to this. What's it say? What profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. Nick told the men, he came back and instead of snorting cocaine in a club in, in, uh, in Hindley Street with his henchmen, he talked to his henchmen and said, I don't want coke, I want to talk about Jesus. He wasn't a Christian. He said, if it is true that judgment is really real, if it is true that Jesus has risen from the dead, if it is true that he is coming to judge and we are talking about eternity and if it, I know following Jesus will literally mean I will lose everything that I have and he had vast amounts of money. He said, don't I need to do it? Don't I need to give it up if it's true? His henchman didn't want to talk about it but Nick couldn't get it out of his mind. And he became a Christian. He turned his life to Christ and Jesus washed him clean, became his Lord, turned his life around. He had then to talk to ASIO. He had to talk to the feds. He had to say, I've come clean. He had to talk about all, to all his crime partners and say, I'm, I'm a new person. I'm not doing that anymore. He had to confess. He had to put right things that he had done wrong. He was prepared to do time. And he had an assassination job out on him because now he was weak. But the guy didn't do it. Why? because he looked and, sort of, and, and said, I've heard you change, and I was watching to see whether it was real, and it is real. So he didn't shoot him. Far out. <laughs> okay. But he turned around because he knew that judgment day was real. Jesus was coming. Wake up, Jesus says. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For some in Sardis, there was little time left before the decay of spiritual death set in. The spiritual life had all but blown out like that candle flame, tiny little ember left with a thin plume of smoke. But of course they didn't know that because as a church they had been so alive and they rested on that reputation. But Jesus saw things differently, you're dead. He says, strengthen what remains and is about to die because I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of God. Unfinished in quality, unfinished in quantity. They weren't living out an active faith. Put them side by side with anyone else from their city, no discernible difference. What were they to do? Jesus said, you've got to go back to the gospel. He said, remember what you've received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. Now, what if they don't? Verse three, if you do not wake up, 
I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Now this is the language used elsewhere in the New Testament of Jesus' return. Uh, language used by Jesus and Paul and Peter of that moment. You know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now some of us might be thinking, yeah, but for that church, right, <laughs> obviously Jesus didn't come because judgment day hasn't happened yet. So Jesus' words are empty. For this, you've got to think, think for a moment, for this to be a current word at the time of writing to the church in Sardis in the first century and for it to be current for every church that has existed after that time, commentators who've wrapped their brains around this agree that Jesus must be referring to another sort of coming in his presumably in his spirit, to these dying churches to extinguish that dying ember. In other words, some churches will be snuffed out. A terrible judgment on them. Now, Adelaide, we know, has many churches that were once vital, but they stopped preaching and stopped living the gospel, and now they either don't exist, they've been snuffed out, or they've completely lost their witness. They are but an ember left. Who wants to come to a church which in every way is the same as the surrounding culture? So by letting go of the gospel in order to be relevant, they actually kill themselves. This was the church in Sardis with only a few named exceptions. Verse four, yet you have a few names in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. Now this was a city, of course, which with, with pagan worship which often went hand in hand with sexual immorality, we explored this last week. And it seems that most of the church had somehow given in to idolatry, that is they worshiped the same things as the people around them worshiped and maybe they were having a bet both ways, God and whoever, Athena, Artemis. And this inevitably led them to having the same sexual values as the culture and there were only a few in the church who who hadn't given in, who'd consistently walked with Christ. Now it's possible that you might be sitting here thinking, well, I haven't worshiped Artemis, but I've strayed. And maybe now you're feeling hopeless, you're dead. If you're honest, you know that your sin has done damage to your soul because in your life you, you know that you're not walking with Christ. Now, is it hopeless? I mean, what hope is there? Well, I want to say there is much. Because remember who it is who's speaking. Remember how every, for every church covered in these letters, Jesus describes himself differently. He describes himself uniquely to that church in terms which exactly meet the need of the church. So here, for a church whose vast bulk of members were spiritually dead, verse one, Jesus is the one who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Seven means complete in Revelation. So Jesus is the one who holds all of God's spirit and all of the works of God's spirit in his hand, the seven spirits of God, as well as the seven lampstands, chapter one, verse 20, the angels or the messengers to the churches. So he's saying there's hope because Jesus has the spirit and works with the spirit. They are not different, they work together. And he is powerful. And Jesus holds the churches and the message to the churches 
And therefore, the message to the churches is powerful to bring deep and life-giving repentance, even to people who've basically abandoned Jesus and there's little spiritual fruit. So there's hope, but it's not automatic. It's not like magic. These words need to be heard. There are things to do. Wake up. Strengthen what remains. Remember what you've received. Hold it fast. Repent. Urgency. Jesus says, the one who is victorious will, like those who haven't compromised themselves, will also be dressed in white. This is the clothing of purity, the clothing of victory, the clothing of celebration, the clothing of holiness. All of these are true. And he says, the one who's victorious who can get over this will be dressed in white. Now, this is a promise that is true now in this life. You'll be clothed with Christ's righteousness and it is true in the life to come. The fact that he promises it shows that it's not hopeless, it's possible. Okay. Now, even though you may have feared that your name, perhaps because of some grievous sin, some habitual sin, even though you may fear that your name has been blotted out of the book of life, Jesus says, no, I will never blot out the name of that person who overcomes from the book of life. But in fact, I will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. Now, this is worth living for. I want you to imagine the day when Jesus returns. I mean, any description I attempt will be so inadequate, right? but his majesty lighting up the sky from one end to another. You hear the trumpets. Everyone in the world hears trumpets at this moment. And every head looks up from whatever they're doing or wakes up from wherever they are and looks in his direction, wherever he's coming from. And some will look with dreadful realisation um, and terror. Others will look with elated joy. What will you look with? You know, will it be terror? Will it be elation? Will it be... Ah, hope, kind of, but with a lurking fear. Everyone rises in the air to meet him, gathered before his heavenly throne. And then a book is opened. It's the book of life. And Jesus begins reading out. And we're all there. And every name read out in the book of life meets with an ecstatic mixture of relief and joy and worship for that person. Will your name be read out? Well, you'd heard Jesus' words in this letter. You'd realized in your life the sign of compromise. You listened to the Spirit. You felt the Spirit's deep conviction in your life. You amended your life. You wonder, is it enough? You held to the gospel. You leaned in to his promise of forgiveness and the message of life from Jesus, the life giver, and now here he is, and he's coming up to your name, and then he reads it out. He reads your name. He doesn't denounce you. He doesn't cast you away, though you know you actually deserve it. Before a multitude of angels in the sky, 10,000 times 10,000, and before God the Father on the throne, Jesus Christ, your Lord and Saviour, acknowledges you by name. And it is the greatest moment in your life. 
Now that, friends, is the hope that we live for. That's what those, in fact, in the church in Philadelphia lived for. Those in Sardis, they relied on their own name, not Jesus' name, but those in Philadelphia, Jesus says at verse eight, I know your deeds and I know that you've got little strength and yet you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. That applied only to a few people in Sardis, but in Philadelphia, it's true for everyone in the church. The church had encountered opposition and temptation to compromise on two fronts. On the one hand, they had the same pressure from the pagans in the city. On the other hand, they were persecuted by the Jews who had excluded them, ejected them from the synagogue and locked them out. And though they bore opposition from two different directions, they never denied Jesus' name, not one of them. Never denied whose name. Well, remember how in each of these churches the description of Jesus exactly meets their need? Verse 7 The religious persecutor seemed real enough, but Jesus is him who is holy and true. And although they had been locked out of the synagogue, Jesus is the one who holds the keys of David. Cross check with Isaiah 22, it means the keys of the kingdom of God. And what he opens, if he opens it, no one can shut that door. You can't be shut out if Jesus has opened the door to you. And then with his eye on the Jewish persecutors who locked them out, he says, you know, what he shuts, no one can open. You wouldn't want to be locked out, would you? In other words, this church was right in not denying his name. Only with Jesus Christ is assurance. Verse eight, he says, I know your deeds and despite your little strength, look, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. You can't be shut out of my kingdom. He gives them assurance. And he gives them then vindication. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. What, okay, being a Jew is all about your heart. It's not about your heritage. Paul says that in Romans 2, it's a matter of the heart. Back in October, the series before this in Revelation, we were in John's Gospel and from John chapter eight, we heard how Jesus explained to the Jewish leaders who refused to come to him and believe in him that the reason why they did so was because their father was the devil, not God. Biologically, they were descendants from Abraham but their father was Satan. Whether we do or don't listen to Jesus shows us who, what our spiritual parentage is. Jesus says, those who, people who locked you out whose father is the devil, on the day of judgment, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. So vindication, assurance, vindication, and then protection, verse 10. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. What's he talking about? I've included some references on your outline which tell us that in the period leading up to Jesus' return, there will come upon the world intense times of suffering for unbelievers. Jesus is promising here somehow, and I don't know how, but somehow to shield his people from that. When you read through Revelation, the book of Revelation, in the chapters that follow, you glimpse, glimpse something of this. In Revelation 6, when the seals of God's purposes are opened, the judgment falls on the earth, and then the kings of the earth, not the saints, but the kings of the earth, cry to be hidden from the wrath of the Lamb. 
In chapter nine, God commands locusts to harm only the, the unbelievers. In chapter 12, the woman flees to the desert where she is taken care of for this period. In each case, there are images of God protecting his people from the wrath leading up to the day of judgment. Does this mean that Christians will never encounter any issues? No, we were protected from the wrath of God, but not from the wrath of Satan. In other words, persecution will happen. That's there right through the book of Revelation. But his message to the faithful is hold on, and it's continual tense, hold on, you've got to keep holding on. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. And then verse 12, our heavenly reward is named, not once, not twice, but three times. To the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. It won't be like that mad dash for the open when an earthquake hits. You know, you see in the footage and people, instead of taking shelter inside, they run outside so that the building won't fall on them. Okay, Philadelphia had had its share of earthquakes. But you will be in the temple. You will be a pillar in the temple. The temple will be permanent, safe, secure. And in fact, those who are victorious will be the pillars in it, living pillars. They'll be part of it. Jesus says, I will write on them the name of my God, meaning they will belong to him. That's the first named reward. And then he says, I will write on them the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. That is, they are certified members of the eternal heavenly city. And then thirdly, I will write on them my new name, the name that is above every name. They belong to Jesus Christ. Last night, um, my high school had its 35th reunion. I couldn't go, it was in Sydney. Um, it's the year of 87. It's a great year. Anthea was born in 87, where's Anthea? There you go. Oh yeah. Now, I wasn't there, but I don't suppose it mattered to any of the guys there Whose name was inscribed on the honour board for our year at school? Remember those boards, you know, in gold lettering, the school captain, school ducks, those who had the sporting award, the cricket award? Who cares 35 years later? I mean, that glory has long faded. But there is a pillar where it really will matter in 35,000 years' time that your name is on it and alongside of your name, the name of God, and of Jesus Christ, and of the new Jerusalem. That glory will be a glory that will not fade. So, two letters to the churches, two churches. The first relied on their own name. The result was spiritual death almost, calling for dire action. The second didn't forsake Jesus' name because their heartbeat as a church was to live not for themselves, but for Jesus Christ. To us, Jesus says from both of these letters, if we've got ears, we're to hear what the Spirit is saying to us. And through these letters, the Spirit is asking each of us personally and individually, and also collectively as a church, whose name do you live for? As a church, is it the case that we perhaps are resting on our own name? 
Is it the case that we just say, oh, yes, I go to Trinity Aldgate, and that has a reputation of a church that is alive? If it's the case that we are resting on that reputation, could it be that we are not actually alive? Not like we once were. Well, we always need to ask that question, don't we? Because the difficulty in saying, no, that doesn't apply to us, is that in saying it, we may actually be falling into the very thing Jesus warns us against, that is resting on our name. We can't say we're okay, we're from Trinity, because Jesus assesses each church on its own merits, and one church is assessed differently from the one down the road. We can't say we're okay, we were the first church planted from the Trinity mothership, because that would be resting on our name, wouldn't it? We can't say, well, of course we're okay because the church plants that we contributed to under Chris Edwards and under Cameron Munro, previous pastors here, or because of Carol's events that we ran in the past where so many people came. Remember, we've got the photos. Everyone else has forgot, but we've got the photos. Um, that would be relying on past glories, wouldn't it? The question is, whose name are we living for now? In the present, this year, not last year, this year. Is it ours? our name that we're living for or as a church? You know, there are, there are lots of benefits, aren't there, staying in the one church for a long time. But it also can be hard because you have history and you remember how things used to be and the temptation when you experience grief at change is to always hearken back to the glory days. Now, if you do that consciously all the time when you're sitting at church in your heart, you're just thinking of how it used to be, you are not thinking about the present nor the future and living for Christ as a church and contributing now for the future. So as a church, is our collective pulsing consciousness that we live for ourselves because of how we used to be or do we live now in the present that the name of Jesus Christ would be glorified through us? On a personal level, who do you live for? Is it about you? Do we live for our own name, each for our own glory? When I say the name Irene Cara, does that mean anything to you? Yes, because? She's a famous singer. She sang. Fame and flash, and what a feeling. From Flashdance, right? Okay, she sang the song Fame in the 80s. I'm going to make it to heaven. Light up the sky like a flame. Fame! I'm going to live forever. Baby, remember my name. Irene Cara died yesterday. 63. The only way that anything she said could come true is by living for Jesus Christ. That is the only way light up the sky in my name. Do we live for him? The one who is holy and true, who holds the keys to the kingdom, who opens a door for us that no one can shut, who promises assurance and vindication and protection for the one who stays true to him. Who do you live for? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to you and to me. Father, what a challenge. Forgive us for relying on reputation personally and also as a church. Father, 
strengthen what is there in us. Help us to go back to the gospel and to live for Jesus' name and for his honour and glory as his name bearers. And when pressure comes, hold out and not deny his name. Give us strength not to be ashamed of the Son of Man because we long for that day that we would be acknowledged by him before you.